Welcome to Anthony Ploga Music. This is Eddie Ludema, the show's producer, here to introduce to you Tony's guest today, Nick Norton. In his 38 years with the Utah Symphony, Nick experienced all aspects of what it means to be an orchestral trumpet player. He began his career with the orchestra as second trumpet, and after nine years auditioned for and won the principal trumpet position. But in addition to his musical experiences, Nick has also had a very full life outside of music, including helping preserve City Creek Canyon in Salt Lake City in its pristine state for the future. To quote Tony, Nick's not only a good friend of mine, but he is also a hero for me, a person with great integrity and honor, and also he has a great sense of humor. I can't recall a phone call with him where I didn't laugh. Tony and Nick begin their conversation by talking about Nick's auditions for second and later principal trumpet with the Utah Symphony. He took about nine mock auditions for Friends before that audition, and he talks about how his poor showing and the lesson that he learned in that last mock audition helped him win the position with the Utah Symphony. Since he's played all positions in the section, Tony asks him about the different roles or goals of each trumpet seat in the orchestra and how to work well within a section. Nick also briefly played principal trumpet with the Malmo Symphony in Sweden, so they get into some potential general differences they've noticed in brass playing between American and Swedish orchestras. But before Nick and Tony get into their conversation, we'd like to share with you a seasonal message from our sponsor friends at Dorico. Until 8th of January 2024, save 25% on new Dorico Pro 5 and Dorico Elements 5 licenses, updates from earlier versions, upgrades, and competitive cross-grades from Sibelius and Finale. You can also save 25% on the lifetime unlock in-app purchase in Dorico for iPad, giving you permanent access to all current and future premium features. It's a great time to step up to Dorico 5, with the arrival of the version 5.1 update that includes a brand new orchestral sound library, Iconica Sketch, and hundreds of other improvements. Visit www.steinberg.net slash promotion to find out more. Ho, ho, ho. So, Nick Norton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tone. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you on. We've been friends for many, many years. Uh, I don't know how many years it's been, but it's been a very, very long time. And um, you're not only a great trumpet player, but you're a great friend and actually a hero of mine. And I would like to talk first in this uh, conversation about your time as an orchestral player. And when you were with the Utah Symphony, you were with them, I believe, for 37 years, or was it 38 years? 38, I think, yeah. And so you entered the orchestra as second trumpet, and I believe you played 11 years as second trumpet. And then when the first trumpet, principal trumpet, came free, you auditioned for principal trumpet and won that. And you were principal trumpet for the remainder of your time with the Utah Symphony. So I'd like to talk about your time, number one, auditioning for the orchestra. And so when you auditioned for second trumpet, you were studying at, at USC, and you went up and auditioned for the orchestra. And I wonder if you could talk about that audition, what it was like. Sure, yeah, and maybe just to... To correct the the times, uh, I was in the orchestra. I was, I think, I was second, I believe, for nine years, and then became principal. And then the last uh, half dozen years, uh, I stepped back into the section. So the majority of the time, I was principal, but I it was in the middle. But yeah, I I auditioned. I was studying with you, as you recall, and I uh, sent in my resume to get into the audition. And it was it, it was denied, so you uh, you wrote a letter to somebody or called somebody. I think it was Shelley Hyde, who was the personnel manager at that time, 
and they let me come to the audition. And Shelley was second trumpet who had created the opening by leaving the orchestra. That is correct. Yeah, he was second trumpet for when you were in the orchestra there, previous to when I got right. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember calling Shelley and, and telling him, I said, you know, I can't guarantee that you're going to win the audition. I could never guarantee that. But that you certainly were a person who should be heard. And he said, okay. So up you went. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was really fortunate. You know, when I was studying with you, I had done a few auditions and minor auditions and, and, and had advanced. But uh, I... There was a time there where I, I, and I didn't realize that you just can't, you know, get into a major orchestra audition at that time just automatically. But, for instance, I would uh, apply for the L.A. Phil or whatever, and they wouldn't let you come. You know, they would say you're not qualified, you know. So I was starting to get a little, you know, negative on the thing and thinking, well, I got to do something else. And actually, I don't know if you even remember this or you knew this, but while I was studying with you, I started taking some uh, computer-type classes over at uh, Cal State L.A. I don't remember the computer classes, but I do remember you talking about you were thinking of, of giving up playing and, and, and my saying, hey, you should hang with it a little bit longer, at least through this audition to see what happens. Right, right. Yeah, so that that's exactly uh, what happened on that, and... Uh, and I got the audition, won the audition, so that was that was a good move. <laughs> you know, your audition, in mean, thinking about your audition, and I could be wrong on this, so you tell me if I remember this correctly or incorrectly, but there's an, an, I guess it's a YouTube link from Tom Hooten talking about auditions, and he says something that I think is really wise, actually, which is, um, in general, you don't win auditions on a single excerpt, but you can lose an audition on a single excerpt. And to me, that means you just have to be prepared for anything that comes at you. But in your case, I think you actually might have won the second trumpet uh, position on a specific excerpt, which was a very low part in Einheldenleben, that, 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 that has three low Gs. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were the only person that could play that really cleanly. Do I remember that correctly? Uh, you know... You have a better memory than me, and, and I don't remember that specifically. Okay. No, <laughs> for certain things. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, but I uh, it, it very well could be. So I'm not sure. Tell you the truth, and uh, it seems kind of foggy. I, I just remember uh, I got to stay with a, a good good friend of yours, Bonnie Bennett, the night before the audition in mm. Salt Lake, and she lived kind of up in a canyon. And you were concerned when I went to the audition that the high altitude would be possibly something that would come into to play, you know. And so I stayed with Bonnie up, and she was e- even higher up in the in the uh, atmosphere than the downtown Salt Lake. And I, I, I kind of wonder if maybe that kind of got me used to the atmosphere because it didn't really, the thin air, it didn't bother me at all, as I recall, you know. Another thing I remember about that audition, we'll get to the specifics of the audition, but was that you were not happy with your sea trumpet, so I lent you my sea trumpet, <laughs> and you went up and... <laughs> and I, I, and I know what's audition, coming up. And you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you came back, and I congratulated you, and the first thing you said was, your horn's filthy. <laughs> Well, it was <laughs> not filthy. even thanks for lending it to me. Well, I, <laughs> well, that's, I cl- how, that's how you get a, such a warm sound. Well, you got it. Yeah, well, yeah, and you got you got a really you know a free cleaning <laughs> of your horn because I cleaned it before I went. It, it was amazing. Okay, so it was a win-win situation. It was, then. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the audition. How many rounds? Do you remember what you had to play? Or? No, <laughs> I don't remember much about it. <laughs> 
I remember. I'm wondering if if it was mainly second trumpet material or or first trumpet or. I don't remember. <laughs> I I I can remember some other auditions more than that one, but uh, I just remember just being there. And one of the things, the hall here is a beautiful hall, and it was only a year old when I auditioned there. And it's a big hall. I think it's 2,800 seats, I think. It's either 24 or 2,800. And it's a beautiful uh, facility and walking on stage. And with a single instrument in that hall, uh, it's a, it's it's really uh complimentary to your sound i mean it's it, you know and, and you go in and going like i'm going to be swallowed up by this thing and it was just wow it's, it's a big sound and i and i just remember it was easy to play there for me that day that's great so so about i guess 10 years later then you auditioned for um first trumpet uh principal trumpet in utah symphony and i remember this and i use this a lot when i talk to people about taking auditions one thing you did was you played a number of mock auditions in fact i think it was maybe nine where you would get people to listen to you and you just play through the excerpts maybe people would even call out the excerpts and then you'd have to play them um and i remember a couple of things you said number one you said some of the times you'd play for people who were not necessarily your best friends so that you felt more pressure because if you didn't play well, they'd say, you know, maybe to another friend, well, he's not so good these days or something. And your final audition was when you came up to play with Summer Brass and you played in this really awful sounding um, com- condominium room for Ray Mace, Alan Dean, myself, and Gail Williams. And that was sort of your first meeting, I think, with Alan, Ray, and Gail. And so... The pressure was really on, and you felt like you didn't play very well. I didn't think you played that poorly, but you felt like you played quite poorly, and then and you were quite depressed. and And I was worried about you. And then I think it was three or four days later, you won the audition because you said playing the audition for the Utah Symphony was so much easier than playing in that room for those people. Do I still have that? That's right? correct. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. And I remember, uh, I think it was Ray Mace. When I was playing for you guys, and I can't remember if it was when I was done or during it, he went over and he, he and he touched my shoulder and he says, "You look like you're about to, you're going to shatter when I touch your shoulder." You know, <laughs> really? <laughs> so, I don't remember that yeah, at he all. Said, it looks like you're going to shatter. <laughs> you know, relax. You know, and so, uh, and, but I remember that going like, okay, well, you know, that's a good point. Just it's it's it really helpful just to just let down all the the muscle the muscles in your body and and not you know not be so stiff and and just cocked like a gun ready to go you know i mean it was it was uh it was really i remember that being one of the more important things you guys told me and the other thing is is that i you know the audition when i finally did it it, it couldn't have been worse in my mind than when I played for you guys. You know, I mean, if anything was better in my mind. So it kind of helped me uh, go along through the audition easier, you know. How many rounds were there in that audition for Principal Trumpet? You know, again, I don't remember, but I think there were three. And I believe in the end there was three people uh, that were still in play, I believe. It was, or three other people. It was either three or four people that were in the very final round. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of the excerpts in the final round? Yes. <laughs> there, there was one really odd thing. Good. <laughs> now that you remember it, I remember it. Okay. <laughs> well, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is, 
and this was what and I, I was in town and I could have maybe tried to snoop around and figure out what this means. But one of the excerpts, it said Brandenburg Concerto or or, or Cantata 51. And so, if you saw that on a list, what what would you be thinking? I'd do Cantata Fifty One <laughs> yeah, in a heartbeat, <laughs> right? But because yeah. I never I never could play Brandenburg very well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like to me, it's it's ten times it's it's the you know it's ridiculously different piece than uh, Fifty One, you know. And so, but I that just didn't make sense to me. So I worked on the Brandenburg as though I'm going to have to play it, you know. And when they, when they got in the finals, you had to play the Brandenburg the. Uh, third movement uh, a good chunk of that uh, so i'm glad you know i just because uh, i was going like that doesn't if you have a choice uh, it doesn't make sense you know so so that kind of helped helped me in a way though because uh, it might have taken off some of the pressure you're going to play the brandenburg well there's a chance you might not have to you know but i worked on it as though you did you know any other standard orchestral excerpts you remember having to play uh no. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm an old man. You know, I can't okay. remember anything. <laughs> you know. Well, if it makes you feel good, when I was in college, I wasn't an old man, and I took a girl out on a date and forgot her name. So um, I guess memory well, is... I, well, I was hoping in this interview thing. you would talk about some of, the, some of your dates, some of the great things that you did. Like, for instance, <laughs> now I remember next trip that you played that you told me this story about. And you were playing uh, the off-stage solo to Pines of Rome, right? Was that it? Oh yeah, in the gymnasium. You were the San Antonio Symphony in the gymnasium, and you had a yes, and you, yeah, and you had yeah, a we, first date there. Is right, first date. Is that correct? To listen to you? No, actually, it never was a date. Um, it, this this person I sh- who shall re- remain nameless is still a really really good friend, and she's married to a really really good friend. Um, but um, I always had a crush on her. She's the nicest person. She's just a great great person. Um, but I don't think I should say her name. But she, she in Los Angeles, I always had a crush on her. And I was on tour with the San Antonio Symphony, and and we were playing big programs. And one of the pieces we were playing every night was the Pines of Rome. So I'd always walk off stage and play the off stage solo. And now I think they have somebody just waiting off stage to play the solo. But in those days, the principal trumpet would walk off stage and play the solo. So I'd play the solo, walk back on stage, and it was never a problem. And then we played, it was a tour of the West Coast, and we played in a gymnasium, a huge gymnasium, someplace in Southern California. I forget exactly where it was. <clears throat> and so I had to walk uh, probably about 50 yards to get off stage, and off stage would mean I'd I'd get in the, the I guess the side corridor where they had all the trophies you know that were won by the basketball team and all that kind of stuff, and play the solo from there. And when I finished the solo, then I had to walk back on stage, and I was for the first time I was really nervous on that solo. And when it came to the high G at the end, um, just before I played it, I remember thinking I made it. And then I went for the high G, and I, I missed it, and I had to go for it like about three or four times before I got it, and then had to walk back on stage in defeat <laughs> about 50 yards to get to get to my chair. In spite of that, we're still good friends. <laughs> but I never had a date with this person. Yeah, I would imagine the footsteps were loud in a gym, too. You are probably like clomp, clomp, clomp. Well, the orchestra was still playing. Oh. You know, the orchestra was in, in the third movement. It's pretty soft. I guess it's or the end of the second movement. I forget. 
Yeah, it's pretty soft, yeah. but I was, I mean, the way I was walking, I was not walking proudly, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> well, the good thing about so you, I Tony, think Tony has, probably has a few moments like that. Y- yes. The good thing about you, Tony, one of the best things is you have so many stories to tell, and mainly they're about orchestral stuff that happened. And uh, that's always been a really great thing when you've done a master class. You'll usually tell about some total screw-up that happened. And it makes everyone feel more comfortable when you do that and when you're teaching or having a master class. Well, when I tell a story at home, my wife and kids say, yeah, I've heard that a hundred times. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to hear you say that you enjoy the stories. <laughs> That's good. But yeah, I think everybody everybody has times when they, when they screw up. And, um, you know, I've talked very openly about the first job I had, which was the San Antonio Symphony. Um, I got fired, not because of that solo, uh, because of some other things. But I mean, that's not a great career recommendation when you get fired from your first job. But I think whether it be just a, a bad performance or a job that you're playing or an orchestra that you're playing in, occasionally you're going to have failures. And and as difficult as those can be, it's not the end of the world. You know, you just keep trying trying to do really good work and, and move forward. Yes. Since I gave up the trumpet, you know, I still, on master classes, I'll, I'll, I bring along a mouthpiece and I'll borrow somebody's trumpet and I haven't played for anything, you know, for three or four months. And I can, you know, I can still sort of play a warm-up to demonstrate a warm-up. But once or twice, I've, I've tried to demonstrate an excerpt and, you know, it was not a pretty sight, shall we say. Well, that's, that always amazes me. That amazes me that you can play cold like that and without practicing at all. I, that's, that's, that's crazy. I don't know anybody else that can really do that. Do you know another player that can just pick it up and play well without even touching it? Well, you know, I haven't talked to anybody about that, but I've, I've thought about that a lot, and not for me specifically, but just as a general idea. And I think... I mean, when I when I stopped playing, you know, my last concert was with the Summit Brass in 2001. And so I thought like two or three months later, I would not be able to even play a note on the trumpet. And I picked up the trumpet and I could, you know, I could play, you know, um, at least a warm up and some other stuff with it with a pretty good sound. And I was sort of um, amazed. And the thing that's interesting now <clears throat> is that now it's a little bit different because it's been quite a long time. But for the first 20 years, at least, um, I could pick up a trumpet and just sort of play. Whereas when I was a player, I would have to warm up before I could play. And I think the thing is that now, not having played for such a long time, my lips are totally relaxed. They're not stiff like I've had a tough night before. And so it's about about as good as it's going to get right at the beginning. Whereas when you're a player, you have to sort of warm up or you want to warm up to get your lips supple and ready to go. That's just a theory I have. And I think actually it would be interesting for somebody to do some research on this. I don't know if it's such a small subject that maybe nobody would want to research it, but it's just interesting to me how much we lose and how much we think we lose, but maybe we don't lose, et cetera, et cetera, regarding uh, chops and all of that. And But fingers, for example, fingers are, are just as good as they were before. You know, not that I had super great fingers, but I didn't notice any decline in, in fingering on the trumpet at all. Well, I think you do have uh, extraordinarily great fingering technique. I think you're being modest on that one. The uh, warming up, though, I was wondering, for me, uh, as I got older, I would do a little bit longer warm-up. And I kind of wondered if it's just basically an age thing where you're, everything is kind of a little more stiff and creaky and you know, you're maybe you're 
the the texture of your skin or the texture of your lips or whatever is a little more just less pliable for me though I did have to kind of warm up and I never was like a huge long warm up person but I kind of added some more time generally as as time went on I don't know I think for me it, it was more I mean, I, I quit playing when I, I think I was 53 when I quit playing. So that's relatively young. I think most people quit when they're older, you know, when they're in their sixties, maybe or seventies. Um, so maybe I didn't have to struggle with some of the things you, you talk about. Um, I always did, you know, like for a warm up, usually I had two or three warm ups that I would do, but sort of the longer warm up I would do would be this stamp warm up. And when I first started it, I did it. You know, it took me about 45 minutes, and at the end, I could do it, all of the warm-up, in about 15 minutes. I could, hmm. and, and I didn't leave anything out. I just played the notes faster, and I would do the scale exercises, which was the second part of the warm-up, really fast, and that actually made me feel uh, more supple, and my lips feel better than if I did it slower. So I think everybody sort of finds their own way what warm-up works the best for them. I, I heard once that Dale Clevenger did a master class, and somebody asked him, how do you warm up? And his answer was, I never cool down. So yeah. <laughs> that's another way of looking at it, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Well, let me go back to your time w with the orchestra. So you were in there for um, 38 years, and you played second trumpet, first trumpet, and then I, you moved back down to second trumpet? or Well, was just it kind like of a section player. Trumpet? I mean, uh, just, just wherever we needed me, <laughs> you know. I, I remember playing a, a couple, a few times. I'd play first again, and I'd play fourth or second, just, you know. We hired a really good trumpet player, Travis Peterson. Yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, and uh, Jeff Luke was in the section at that time, and Peter Margulies uh, during that period uh, was in the orchestra. When I first got in the orchestra, it was Bill Sullivan and Ed Cord in the orchestra, and they were co-principal, and I was second trumpet when I got in. And then later on, uh, let's see... Uh, Bill Sullivan retired, and Ed Gornick, I think, came in. And then after that, Peter Margulies, then Jeff Luke joined the orchestra, and then Travis Peterson. I think those are the people that have come in since 1980 is when I got in the orchestra. And now they have it's a different section now, now that I'm not in. So talk about your role, what you saw your role as being as a second trumpet player um, and as a first player and then as somebody, I guess you would call a roving player, where you'd sort of fill in in different parts. Like a second trumpet player, what did you see as the challenge for you or what was your goal or what did you think your job was? Well, it's just try. Uh, my goal was try to match what the first player is doing. I would try to have a for me like a, a more of a beefy kind of uh low sonorous maybe uh, sound and something with a real foundation if if you can on, on certain repertoire on other repertoire you know if there's a, a call and an answer or something in the first and second you try to match what they're doing as though uh, you know you were maybe a first player but basically have a good foundation a good sound really play in tune with whoever's playing and be aware of what how they're articulating try try to match uh, try to support try to not uh, get in the way <laughs> uh, just try to be sort of a mirror or a, a shadow more like try to be a shadow that helps and, and not hurts you know you know I've had some students that have been able to 
play in a section that I kind of have told them what needs to be done. And I think it's really helped them more than more than anything, that, that kind of thing, how to play with others, not how to stick out as like, I'm going to be the, I'm going to show these guys, you know, I'm going to show these gals. Uh, you go in and you try to be part of, of the fabric and hold down your part, but not be a, a pain, you know, to other people, you know. When Ed Cord, for example, would be playing on first trumpet, would be playing C trumpet, would you play C trumpet or B flat trumpet to try and get a, a what would you say, a meatier sound to support him? You know, we'd play C almost all the time. I'd play B flat, obviously, on, you know, held in layman or something that required it. But uh, no, we always played C. Ed Gornick played C. Pete, and we all played C basically, uh, unless there's some piece that required a, a lower note. Okay, and then his first trumpet. How did you see your goal or challenge change in terms of what you wanted to do? Well, I was lucky because I, I had been in the orchestra for a long time, like for eight years, and people knew my playing. And it's not like I had to go into an orchestra and prove myself. You know, I, I mean, they, people knew how I played. And so that's a very different thing than going into a new orchestra, I would think, in my, in my opinion. So I just played like I normally uh, would, but I was in that position and I worked well. Larry Zalkin was the first trombone at that time, uh, and I sat with him. And Pete Margulies came in, and he's he's a great player. He plays first and second. He plays anything. He's a great jazz player. And so uh, I, I was really lucky with the people that I ended up playing with, especially at the beginning as first trumpet. It was, in a way, it was it was easy. The conductor there, we had a good relationship before I got first trumpet and, and after uh, Joseph Silverstein. I, I really respected him. Uh, he, you know, he he played under the greatest conductors of all time, basically, and he was sitting three feet under their noses as concertmaster of the Boston Symphony. And, and he didn't take the maestro myth seriously, you know, if he would mess up, you know, he would kind of stop and say, what is this guy doing? You know, or like he would point at himself and, and kind of go <laughs> like, I'm you know, sorry about that. But he didn't, he didn't, you know, that everybody has a bad cue or something, but he was, uh, I liked him. And, and then he played uh, violin solos with us. My, one of my first few albums we did with the symphony were violin concerti with him being the soloist and conducting from the solo chair. So I was lucky with that. I had him, and then I had uh, Keith Lockhart. Mm, okay, right. Keith Lockhart was with the Boston Pops, and he became our music uh, director. And uh, we had a good relationship, too. He he brought a different strengths to the orchestra. Obviously, he could do all the different genres really well. Uh, Joey was uh, fantastic on the classical repertoire and romantic repertoire. And, the, you know, the meat and potatoes, what an orchestra plays and and the good thing about the orchestra playing that is that you you become more of a you know a symphony orchestra if you play that that uh, standard rep with somebody who's seen probably 10 different conductors do it so that was really great but when Keith came in that was really good too i mean he was uh, young and uh, very creative in uh, what he was doing as far as the uh, uh, more of the modern music and adding s- stuff like the jazz idioms and uh, 
pop music, and he knew how to do that. So I was lucky that both of those conductors, we got along good, and it was a, it was a good situation for me. Have you ever had cases where, like, conductors got on your case, and if they did, how did you handle it? <laughs> I don't think I can recall somebody that really got on my, my case. Uh, I can't believe I'm going to do this on your show, because I kind of was hoping nobody would remember this, but uh, we were doing a TV program, <laughs> and it's called Salute to the Symphony, you know, and it's really well done, you know, and all with, as far as the... Uh, what do you call it? The the TV worthiness of it, the, the production production values. value. That's exactly the word, you know. And so uh, we we played the planets, the one movement. Uh, it's a Jupiter, the one you know. Da da dee, da da dee, da 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 da. Oh yeah, Jupiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh-huh. right. And there's a lot of trumpet stuff in it, you know. And uh, it was really fun playing the heck. You know, it's just really kind of a fun thing to do, and we. In the very ending, da da dee, da da, bop, you know that high whatever it is, C. I think high C, yeah. yeah. And and I split the, I just split it really pretty good, you know. And and <laughs> and he put down his baton, you know, and like kind of stops. Who was conducting? Uh, Keith Lockhart. And he kind of uh, you know put it down and. Uh, <laughs> You know, he just, he kind of, for just a split second, kind of went by, and then he said, come on, what what are you doing? You know, what, and, and kind of to the orchestra, but kind of to me, because I, I screwed it up. And so we had to do that whole take yeah. again. We did the whole, uh, the whole movement again. So that was, that was a... Oh, the whole movement. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that was my, I think my made, my worst screw up that had some consequence, you know. But, I, but I, and, and I felt bad about it, but I just, you know, I missed it. <laughs> You know. Yeah, that happens with everybody. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Well, can you think of any guest conductor that was like your favorite guest conductor and, and why? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I'm, try, I, I'm trying to, you know, I, I was kind of in my own thing when I played trumpet. I, I, I didn't want or need, it's always nice, right? But I think if you try to want praise from the conductor or if you have a you know he, he likes me or something that's great but for me i didn't want to buy into that too much because it puts to me to me it would put pressure on myself to live up to some ideal that the conductor may have of me which was probably incorrect you know i mean you know you you survive as a first trumpet player you you to some degree you you just have to go through hard times uh, you have bad chops but you survive you know you 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 make it happen uh at, at least acceptable and hopefully uh, closer to you know extraordinary you know but usually it's, it, you you're just trying to survive at least that's the way i felt and try to have a good time not survive in a in a bad th- bad way you know i mean but you you just work you work work the room or whatever the the, the slang would be. You you just try to to make it happen and do the job and just get it done as best as you could, no matter what. Yeah, there's a great quote that I love. I have it downstairs when I compose by the piano, and I'm I don't compose that much by the piano anymore because I just use the the engraving system that I use, Dorico. But um, this quote is, um, and it, it applies to to any sort of performance from Gil McDougal, who was the uh, shortstop for the New York Yankees in the late 50s and the 60s. 
and a little bit profane, but he said, it's easy to play great when you have a great day and to play horseshit when you have a horseshit day. The question is, can you play great when you have a horseshit day? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the challenge is, is to whatever you're doing, do a great job when it's not a good day. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this particular subject, it kind of goes to your section, too. For instance, if you have a good second player, they can really just help you through, help you through really rough rough passages. They really can. Or uh, having a flexible section, like if uh, the associate say, can you play this uh, piece, piece this week? Because I, I just don't want to deal with it or whatever. You know, uh, if you have somebody that's willing to jump in there, you know, Jeff Luke was really willing to do that. Pete, Pete Margulies was, uh, he, he was, he's so versatile. Uh, they can help you out, you know. So, so I was really lucky, and all the players I played with were good to work with. When I was principal trumpet, they were all really supportive, uh, and that that helps. Uh, it, it, worst thing you can have is somebody in your section that uh, doesn't respect you and, and maybe wants to, you know, not help out so much, you know. And I've never had that happen to me, but I was. I kind of assume that is the case in certain situations. Yeah, for sure. That that's that can be the case. I, I, I don't know if this is true or not because it's anecdotal, but I heard of many years ago a woman who got a first trumpet job in some orchestra in Germany and the second trumpet player did not like, you know, playing second to the to this woman and and the whole season while she was, you know, going for her tenure, he'd play just slightly sharp on octaves or things like that to sabotage her. And evidently she did not get her tenure because he sort of destroyed her playing, you know. Mm. So, I mean, it is possible if you have a section that's not a complementary section, it can really be difficult. I mean, that kind of stuff, I don't think that that happens nearly as much anymore, uh, which is good, but it's still a little bit of a problem, I would think. I think you're right. I I bet it doesn't happen much at all. I think, I don't know, just the equalization of of everyone being on the same page, despite, you know, race and color or creed or, you know, what sex you are. I think all that's really gotten a lot better, I would assume. And it may go, it may go without, you know, the the maestros who were uh, not, not appropriate sometimes. I would hope that's kind of uncommon now. It seems like it is. And also just sort of this macho aspect, I think, is less common. But being somebody of your age, you could probably address that more than I I could. <laughs> Thanks for the age <laughs> comment. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I do think it, it, it has, things have really changed. Because if I think of two or three of the top conductors today uh, in the United States, you think of Dudamel, who was with Los Angeles and is now with New York, and Andres Nelsons, mm-hmm. who is with uh, Boston. They're both just great people. I've heard of Dudamel that when he was in Los Angeles, he would treat the cleaning lady just like he would treat, treat the concertmaster. And I remember... Um, I was in Japan, and I, I, Boston Symphony was in Japan, so I had dinner with some of the brass guys. And one of the trumpet players was saying, like, they were playing a concert, and he made a big mistake, and, and uh, Nelson's looked up at him and, and almost sort of laughed, you know, like, yeah. uh, that no big deal. Yeah. You know, I know you're trying to do your best, so so that's it. And and when I was growing up, the, the, the two main conductors, the two big orchestras, were Chicago with Fritz Reiner, where supposedly three people had committed suicide because he was so tough. And I've heard so many horror stories about him. And George Zell, who was also, uh, you know, a dictator. So I think it was just different times. Yeah. And, and fortunately, things have, have gotten better. And also auditions. 
have gotten much fairer than they used to be. You know, and a, a conductor could just audition somebody in a hotel room, and now it's it's you know they have rules they have to abide by. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's much better. I mean, you, even before the Reiner era, a little before, not uh, you know Toscanini, those recordings of him berating the orchestra they're astounding yeah. you know unbelievable it's just like a you can't <laughs> yeah they're pretty incredible yeah. so well you also played um for a very short time i forget how long it was with the melness symphony right. in southern sweden as principal trumpet and i'm wondering if if you found playing in a swedish orchestra that different from playing in an american orchestra in terms of the approach to music, the interpretation of music. The thing I, w I noticed with the Malma compared to the Utah Symphony was at that time uh, they were trying to get a new conductor, a new music director, and so we had various conductors come through. Uh, James DePriest was actually going out, and uh, we saw a lot of uh, Pavo Yarvi. Uh, we did recordings with uh, Osmo Svinska. Uh, we, I was seeing some good conductors. Uh, that was the main thing I remember. As far as the brass section goes, again, the section was very supportive. Uh, they maybe played a little bit uh, less, uh, maybe it was a little bit more forward, more brighter way of playing. I don't think that had anything to do with being Swedish or, or um, American. I think it just happened to be the players, what they, what they how they were playing. Uh, I think in the Utah again with uh, we had a horn player named Bruce Roberts, uh, uh, Shelley Showers. They were both principals. Larry Zalkin, Gene Pokorny was tuba. Myself, uh, you know, we were not particularly bright players, you know, uh, and the sound was pretty warm. I feel I think those players have a warm sound. And in the Swedish orchestra, it was, it was a little bit more brash, a little bit brighter, uh, but uh, it could have been just the repertoire we were playing. But other than that, I, I wouldn't say there was a huge difference. They may have played a little, maybe a little more freer, a little bit looser, whereas uh, uh, in the Utah Symphony, I'd say we play, at that time at least, maybe a little more precise, a little more, uh, you know, not quite so... Uh, letting letting it just fly, more they're more precise. I would guess. I, I don't know if this is a good answer though. You no, know, it is. I, I remember actually. Well, I've met him several times. But one time, uh, Vienna Philharmonic was in Freiburg, and I had a lunch with Ian uh, Bosfield, the the principal trombone player of the orchestra, who had previously played, I think maybe sixteen years as principal with the London Symphony Orchestra, and he said the difference between Vienna and London, and London, I would think, would be similar to the United States in terms of rhythm, was with London, a dotted eighth and sixteenth was a dotted eighth and sixteenth. But with Vienna, it could be a dotted eighth and fifteenth or a dotted eighth and seventeenth, depending on the context of the piece, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and when I was with, with Malma, the thing that that impressed me a lot, actually, <clears throat> happened in, in the first week. Because the first week we that I was with the orchestra, we played Sibelius II. And... 
Um, I had played that a number of times in the United States, but it was like during that week, Boo Nielsen gave me a lesson on, on Sibelius and how Scandinavians phrase Sibelius. And it had to do with uh, where they would take a breath. They, they would play to the end of a phrase where in the United States, they would play one note short and then have the final note be a pickup, thinking of the theme of the last movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 different things and i and i realized within a, a very short time that in in europe in general um the public reveres its artist much more than in the united states so that when they're playing sibelius or when when an orchestra in scandinavia is playing sibelius or carl nielsen or somebody like that or if they're playing brahms in vienna or or germany or bruckner um there's a real feel for that and a real depth of feeling and tradition and and we don't have that and i remember reading Actually, well, a couple of things I remember. One was uh, when when Stephen Sondheim turned 75 years old um, in the culture section, I guess you would call it the culture section of the Freiburg uh, newspaper, um, the bottom half of the entire first page was devoted to Stephen Sondheim. And I bet you he was not mentioned in the first page of hardly any um, newspaper in the United States, except for maybe in New York and a few other papers. Um, and I remember also reading a book by Bud Schulberg about um, great writers. And when John Steinbeck died um, and they had a funeral for him, there was a, a line of, I think, about 200 people attending his funeral. And, and Bud Schulberg said if he had died in Paris, if he had been a Parisian, there would have been a line of, of about two miles long. That, that the Parisians and just in general Europeans revere their artists and their musicians much more than they do in the United States. And that was something that was really brought home to me uh, when I played with the Malmö Symphony. So it was a very interesting experience. In part two, Nick talks about his early experiences as a student, which leads into a discussion about different teaching styles, the difference between talent and skill, and what it takes for a student to be successful in achieving their goals. In addition to making music with the orchestra, Nick has also been involved in many other endeavors, perhaps the most important being his fight to preserve City Creek Canyon in Salt Lake City. And since Tony and Nick have been close friends for a very long time, they talk about a few other shared experiences, including a week-long bike tour that they did together in New Hampshire, right after Tony returned from a nice, relaxing vacation in Hawaii. I sense a musical performance metaphor here. But to hear the second portion of Tony and Nick's conversation, please consider becoming a contributing listener by clicking on the big blue button on the podcast website to start a free trial. You can also go directly to anthonyplogue-on-music.supercast.com. As a contributor, you'll be able to listen in to additional audio content and study up on Tony's podcast reflections, where he does a recap of his interviews focusing on suggestions for students. You'll also have access to our Discord server, where you can join an ongoing discussion while meeting and sharing ideas with other listeners. Thank you for listening in, and be sure to help us spread the word.